I'm looking forward to sharing this message with you. Um, we're going to be talking about overcoming prejudice, overcoming prejudice. Remember, in some of the past weeks, we've been talking about the roots of prejudice, roots of racism. Then we've also spoken a bit about understanding stereotypes. Then we also spoke about the effects of these stereotypes. But today, I want to address the issue of how do we overcome it? How do we overcome it? And when we talk about overcoming prejudice and stereotypes, we're not just talking about the perpetrator, okay? So there's the person who's doing it, and that's not great. How do they overcome it? But then there's also the person who's the recipient, the person who's the victim, amen, right? And very often the perpetrators are also victims at the same time. Very often the perpetrators are also victims at the same time. So just because someone has discriminated against you doesn't mean that in certain contexts you're not discriminating against others. Amen. So everything I'm going to say here this morning and some of the clips we're going to show you. We've got some nice juicy clips. Anyone got popcorn? Okay, we've got nice juicy clips that we're going to show you guys, right? Um, don't, don't think, oh, the issue is, is with person X over there. The issue could be with you and me. And we want to make sure that we are clean and we are pure in our hearts with regards to this particular topic. Amen. In subsequent weeks, we're going to talk about cultural diversity. I mean, if you know that the church needs to be at the forefront when it comes to teaching about cultural diversity. We've got many different cultures. Where is our culture okay and where is it not okay? And then we're going to go into some of the specifics. For example, a lot of people are going into polygamy nowadays, right? I mean, they did it traditionally in the past, but you have people doing it today. What does the Bible say about that? So I want to give you a sound, sound biblical teaching on that and how to deal with that issue of polygamy. Would you love that? Okay, because it's a biggie, right? And uh, we're going to address that. We're going to talk about homosexuality. Because often when people speak about diversity and so on, they address that and they're like, you know, there must be tolerance, etc. What's our position as Christians on homosexuality? You know, we've got people um, now they've allowed so-called gay marriages, etc. How do we deal with all of that? Right. And we're going to address it. Right. Um, we're also going to look at gender diversity. How should men and women relate to each other? Amen. So I'm excited about that. Is that scratching where it itches? Is that relevant to you? All right, because that's very important. We want to do things that are relevant, that are going to address issues and bring answers in some of these, um, these areas. So in overcoming prejudice, the first thing I want to highlight is that we must get our identity from God alone. We must get our identity from God alone. How I many of you know that prejudice is an identity issue? Prejudice is an identity issue, and there's an attack on your identity. There's an attack on my identity. You see, the enemy knows that if he can scar us in the area of our identity, he knows we'll always live out our self-concept. If I believe I'm a cow, when you go and have your nice Mother's Day lunch that the men would have cooked for their wives, <laughs> hint, hint, nudge, nudge, right? When you go or outsourced to Nando's or somewhere, right? In case of food poisoning. Amen. Right? Um, when you go and have your lovely lunch afterwards, if I believe I'm a cow, I'm going to go and look for grass to eat. Because we behave according to our identity, our self-concept. But our identity should be rooted in God alone. Genesis chapter 11, verse 1 to 9. It says, now the whole world had one language and a common speech. There was a time when there was only one language in the world. I know sometimes we wish that, right? As people moved eastward, eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. Now, why did they do that? So that we can make a name for ourselves. What is that? That's identity. Very often we do things behaviorally so that we make a name for ourselves and we boost our identity. Can you see a similar story in history? This whole Tower of Babel thing is something that has been played over and repeated throughout history, where people will say, let's go to that country 
and let's build this. Let's kill off those people in that region and let's build this for ourselves and it will not be made by sand. It will be brick and mortar. It will be something different the world has never seen. Why are we doing it? Identity. We want to make a name for ourselves. My question to you this morning is, what are you doing at a behavioral level that's a quest for identity? The Lord spoke to me some years ago and said to me, Paul, why do you need to attach certain names to yourself? You know, sometimes we like name dropping. So-and-so is my uncle. I was in a meeting with the president the other day. I was doing this. Lord convicted me and says, why do you need to attach other names to yourself? Is my name not enough? How many of you know that when you become a Christian, the Bible tells us that we bear Christ's name. You see, God wants to take us to a place in our identity where Christ is enough for me. Amen. That song we were singing, isn't wonderful all the new songs that are coming out? It's just so fresh uh, that the band is teaching us, right? That song, wonderful name, the name of Jesus. Is the name of Jesus enough for you? Or do you have to attach your CV to his name? Is it his name plus plus? Those of you who are into coding, you know, C++, Jesus plus plus, Hey? Or are you content that, you know what, Jesus is enough for me? In the book of Colossians, it actually tells us that in Christ, we are complete. Some translations say, in Christ, we have fullness. Do you feel complete, just Jesus and you? I was speaking to a guy, he's about 28 years of age or so, uh, in one of my workshops. Lovely guy, Christian, strong Christian guy, plays the keyboard at his church. And I said to him, are you married? And he says, uh, no, I'm, I'm single. And I said, do you, do, do you want to be married? He says, yeah, no, if, if God gives me the right person. But I'm content, single and content. How many of you know that to be happily married, prior to marriage, you need to be single and content? It must be Christ is enough for me. Jesus alone is enough for me. And I'm full. Then you go into marriage whole. Are you hearing me this morning? You go into marriage whole. Otherwise, if you're not single and content, what tends to happen is when you get into marriage, you're looking to your spouse to give you things that only God can give you. Amen. Amen. Some of you are like, hey, it's too late. I'm already married. And I had those issues. <laughs> God will heal you. Amen. Some of you are like, I know I'm not whole. I'll just get married and God will heal me anyway. <laughs> All right. But isn't it interesting that they said, so that we can make a name for ourselves? Do you know why people struggle with racial pride? They've looked to the color of their skin to get, to get a name for themselves. They've looked at their so-called race as their source of superiority. They've looked to their cultural identity as a source of pride, that this is the thing that's going to make me better than all these other people. I want to tell you right now, we bear Christ's name. And it's more important to be God conscious than black conscious or white conscious. Are you hearing me? That's our identity. It's rooted in Christ. Then they said, otherwise we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. You know that that's a fear-based decision. Who told them that they will be scattered? Just think about it. They're saying we need to build this tower. If we don't build this tower, we'll be scattered. Who told them that? Have you noticed that very often when people become proud racially or culturally, it's because they're afraid of the other people. They see the other people or the other groups as a threat. That's why we found that the root of racism very often is fear and pride. You'll see someone who's being so prideful of his heritage, and then you'll see someone, that same person, also being so fearful of the other groups. Have you noticed that pattern? All right? So they said, otherwise we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their languages so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth. Isn't that interesting? Had God told them that he was going to do it, 
They ended up getting what they were afraid of. How many of you know that very often the very thing you fear comes upon you? All right. And then it goes on, it says, and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel. Because the Lord there, their Lord, confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. I find this so powerful and there's so much revelation that you can get as you actually unpack the scripture in Genesis chapter 11. You see, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. If you're building something stemming from pride, if you're building something stemming from, I want to make a name for myself, God isn't going to be a part of it. There's no guarantee that God's blessing is on it. And you see, what tends to happen is many of us, we try and build our own stuff stemming from pride. I'm going to build my business empire. Then my family will see that I'm something. I'm going to build my business empire. Then those friends who used to mock me will come and they'll bow down to me. When you build trying to make a name for yourself, trying to find your identity in the thing that you are building, my friends, it will come to nothing because God resists the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. Why are we building what we are building? It also happens with churches and ministry. Very often we do things because we are looking for an identity. This is called a self-naming project. It's a self-naming project. Okay. Now it's important to remember that we all have one blood. Because when you build from a place of pride, you are now saying, I am better than you. But I want to remind us today, and I've been emphasizing it throughout this series, that we all have one blood. It's not like if you cut someone open, you'll see this one has got green blood, like those alien movies people watch. And then you cut someone else open and based on the color of the skin, oh, this person has got brown blood. And the sad thing is, as we are growing up in a divided society, that's what some people think. They think our insides are different and we're some different species because of how we look on the outside. But we know that's not true. Amen. This mindset of building a name for ourselves, it was actually used by a lot of uh, fascist dictators and Nazi dictators. If you think of Germany, especially during the World War II, there was the concept Lebensraum. Remember Lebensraum? Living space. Living space. That's what it means, right? And that was the basis of the Germans, if you studied World War II, going into other territories like Poland and all those places. The, the ideology was we need living space in order to do what we need to do. And through his trickery, Hitler would literally go and try and acquire living space through trickery and then through war, where he would provoke battles and so on. If you study how each of those battles started, okay? He would be saying to the British guys, I ah, know it's fine. Yes, no, we want peace. Oh, we want peace. And then he would go and he would provoke a situation, but it was Lebensraum. And it was interesting because this propaganda caused the German people to believe it. And they were like, yeah, no, it makes sense. In order for us to really be Germans and to grow, we need to take over these other territories around us. And he would con, he would make it seem like it was just a little bit, just a little bit, you know. And then afterwards, you'll see a few months later, no, 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 we also want this. Ah, no, 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 it's just, it's just a bit of Denmark. It's just that port over there. That's all we need, guys. Yeah, Russia, it's, it's fine. We just only need that. And then they would keep getting more and keep getting more and keep getting more. Somehow there's something in us as human beings that causes racial pride. And I'll tell you what it is. We're looking for our identity in what we have. This is all my land. This is all my Lebensraum. And once I have that, then I feel I'm a person. And that's why if you look at all the battles that have taken place, so many of them are over land. Are you hearing me this morning? Why do we have what we're having in the Middle East today? People are still fighting over land. What are we having in this nation today? People are fighting over land. I'm not going to go into the politics. I'm not a politician, so I'm not trying to debate that. But what I'm trying to say is get your identity from Christ, not from Lebensraum. Amen? Not from living space. If you look in scripture, I won't go into it. I'm going to actually talk about land in a particular sermon, okay? I'm going to talk a bit about the land situation and what's a biblical view of it. And what's a biblical view of land redistribution, okay? Because there are things the Bible actually says um, about it that, that, that I think you'll find very interesting. Okay, so 
Some of you might know people out there that think that they are part of a group that is superior. And it's not always so-called race. It's not always about skin color. Sometimes it's actually about, I'm from this tribe and my tribe is better than yours. Are you hearing me? I'm from this country and we are better than you guys. So you find people in South Africa calling the people from up north, like they're inferior or something. And they're just coming as parasites to take our jobs. And then you also have some people from the north. I'm not talking about north of South Africa. I'm talking about north of South Africa. Like north, above South Africa. The rest of Africa. You know what I'm talking about, right? Who come and, and I hear the conversations. And you can see there's this superiority thing. Sometimes because of maybe perception of superior education where we came from. You know? And this mindset of, yeah, these guys are jealous of us because, you know, we know our story. That's pride. And I'm going to show you a clip now of a particular white supremacist in the United States. And just watch what happens and watch what he discovers. Because a lot of people think they're, they're these pure breeds and they're this and this. But praise God for DNA testing. Look what happens. Cobb is the leader of a white supremacist movement uh, that is... Uh trying to take over a small town in North Dakota. They've actually bought up his home and 12 other lots, and they wanted to make it basically an all-white town. There's actually a black guy in the town, so that's a little inconvenient. Uh, and uh, he is definitely in the camp of uh, the racists should not mix, and, uh, and white people need to be separated from black people because nothing good can come of that. He says they're like oil and water, and oil and water don't mix. Well, he just went on the... Um, Trisha show, it's the host is Trisha Goddard, and she was doing a Race in America series, and they had actually done something really interesting. They tested uh, his DNA, Cobb's DNA, to find out uh, how pure he is and where he comes from. Let's find out the results. So Craig Cobb. Craig Paul Cobb has undergone DNA testing to determine genetic ancestry. 86% European, and... Fourteen percent sub-Saharan African. Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Hold on. Just wait a minute. This is called statistical noise. Sweetheart, you have a little black in you. Listen, I'll tell you this: oil and water don't mix. So, hey, bro. No, no, no. I love that, man. I don't know what I love more. Uh, the panic in that guy's eyes. Like, uh, it's just statistical noise. What does that mean? You're 14% black. What is it? I don't understand what statistical noise means, right? And he's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold on. Or the hysterical laughter of the guests. Like, ah, gotcha, gotcha. So that was nothing but fun. Uh, later, he went on to say that, uh, you know, he, he assumed that this was science, but it was craven and debased television executives who only aimed to shock and promote multiculturalism. And, you know, he said the line about how oil and water don't mix after he got the test results. Well, apparently they do mix. They mix inside of you. <laughs> okay. But, of course, he doesn't care about science. It's okay. Hey, Cobb, why don't we just do another test and find out, you know, if you really are white and they tricked you, right? You choose the company to do it. Mm -mm. <laughs> got no interest in doing another test. He says he doesn't care what the test says, that he's still, quote, a border guard for the purebreds. Well, at least 86% purebred. <laughs> and I love that guys like this think that they're, like, superior to other people because they're purebred. If that's what purebred produced, <sighs> I'll take mixed breed any day. <laughs> Everybody is looking at this as like a terrible thing for Cobb, like that now, you know, his movement will fizzle and he'll, he'll be put out of his career, which is being a white supremacist. But actually, I think this is the beginning of a very new career for him. He will soon probably be offered a job by Sean Hannity as an African-American correspondent who will come <laughs> on and tell you all the bad things about blacks in America. And he'll be like, Sean, it's okay, man. I mean, I got 14% black in me. That's okay. And I hate <laughs> black folks. 
Sean Hannity's like, oh, thanks, God. Perfect. Come on in. All right. Power. So I just wanted to give you that as an example. There's much, much more mixture than we think. And people are so proud of, I'm this, I'm that, and so on. Uh, there's much more mixture than we think. Amen. Amen. All right. One of the ways we overcome prejudice, okay, is where we actually interact at an equal level of power. And it's actually a key to dealing with prejudice. A lot of people who are, you know, into the supremacist thing and so on, they will pick on people from other groups and other ethnic groups who are seen as being in a lower class and they'll look down upon them. But you actually find that prejudice is overcome where you see that there are people from that very group that you have judged as stupid, as lazy, as uneducated and so on. When you start interacting with people who've actually, who are educated, when you actually realize that, wait a minute, wait a minute, this person has just had the same opportunities in, as me, and look, they are actually accomplishing A, B, C, D. Are you hearing me? Okay. Otherwise, what tends to happen is people will say, no, just interact with people from that group, and then you'll overcome your prejudice. But if you interact with people from that group who fit into the stereotype you already have about that group, your prejudice will only be reinforced. Does that make sense? Okay. Try to have a good sample size from that particular group and you'll have a healthier view of the particular group of people, all right? The key thing to know is that we are all equal under God. Your money and your status does not make you superior. In Ephesians chapter 6 verse 9, it says, And masters, do the same for your slaves. Give up your use of threats because you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no favoritism with him. When we have this revelation that we are all equal under God and we are all accountable to God ultimately, it removes the pride. It removes the pride, okay? And with all these points I'm making, if you find you've had the wrong mindset, the key thing is repentance. And repentance means to change your mind concerning something with a resultant change in attitude and behavior. You repent. If you're the one who's been the victim, it's important for you to forgive and to release. With all these key points I'm talking about, repent, that's key if you've been the perpetrator, right? And if you're the recipient of it, forgive. And that's how we're going to overcome prejudice in this nation. Amen. Okay? If you've been a victim, do not let anyone take away your dignity based on gender or social class. Don't let anyone take your dignity from you. I find it amazing when Paul says to Timothy, don't let people look down on you because of your youth. How many of you know that we are looked down upon for many reasons? Sometimes it's your youth. Sometimes it's your lack of education. Sometimes it's where you're at financially. Sometimes it's based on who you married. Sometimes it's based on what village you come from. But the Bible, Paul's, in the Bible, Paul says to Timothy, don't let anyone look down on you. So what I'm saying is, if you feel you've been a victim in this area, don't internalize the stereotype. Don't internalize the inferiority. In the same way that people should not have a superiority complex, we should not have an inferiority complex. There's nothing holy about being inferior and having an inferiority complex. Amen? Humility is agreement with the truth. Humility is agreement with the truth. And the truth says that, the truth based on word of God says that I'm the apple of his eye. So when I start downplaying that, I'm not actually being truly humble. In fact, I'm being proud because I'm saying, Lord, I know better. Amen? True humility is ha having a healthy view of yourself based on the word of God. It's not false humility. Amen? All right? So we need to be delivered from the biological myth of race. It's a biological myth. It's a biological myth. The second thing is, if we want to overcome prejudice, we need to seek understanding. I've said to you before, very often you will avoid that which you are afraid of. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because I'm saying, I'm avoiding that which I'm afraid of. And I'm afraid of it because I don't understand it. You'll tend to fear that which you don't understand. And then you avoid that which you fear. Everyone following you avoid that which you fear. And then you don't understand it because you're avoiding it. So you're like, hey, those people, the way they eat, they eat this and this and this. Oh, that's strange. That's weird. Go and ask them about it. Go and ask them about it. Okay? 
How many of you like cow's feet? Cow's hooves. Cow's hooves. Okay, a number of you like them. How many of you, how many of you have frowned upon it? No, don't, don't, don't lift your hand up. Do you know that the Germans also eat cow's hooves? You see, some people come to Africa and they're like, oh, these people are strange. They're eating cow's hooves. They're eating cow's hooves. The Germans also eat cow's hooves. So we have to be careful. Sometimes people look and they say, how many of you like Mopani worms? In Zim, they call them Matlimbi. What do they call them here? Yeah, yeah. Those are how many of you like them? Raise your hands. Now, some people will look at you. They'll look at Lanston. They'll look at Debbie. They'll look at, and they'll be like, you, got, you folks are weird. <laughs> Eating worms, right? But then somehow it's seen as sophisticated when you have, you know, the French eating their snails and eating their frogs and so on. So all I'm saying is people in different nations culturally eat different things. And from your vantage point, you might find it weird and strange. But how many of you know that a lot of taste is acquired? A lot of things, a lot of taste is acquired. If you think of pup, does pup taste nice? Like if you're just eating pup by itself, right? It's a taste you have to acquire. If you grew up with it, you'll like it. What about yams? You guys know yams, right? Yams. In, in Zim, they're called madumbe. All right? How many of you know that that's, that that's an acquired taste? Right? So a lot of the things we eat where other people have to get used to it, we acquire the taste. And if you were brought up in that culture and that environment, you would also like those things. How many of you like samp? I don't, but how many of you like Sam? Okay. <laughs> I think it's an acquired taste, right? But the point is, we must seek understanding. We must be a nation where we are curious about other people. Where we'll say, how did you end up doing this? Why do you like straightening your hair and not leaving it curly? Why do you like making your hair curly and not leaving it straight? And we get into people's worlds before we judge them. Amen? Where we ask people, why do you talk so loudly? Because <laughs> that's another thing. I also sometimes struggle to understand it. Like, I'm literally thinking, guys, we're sitting in a restaurant and you're just next to us, but it's like you're shouting at each other. Are you trying to draw my attention or something? Do you want me to listen to all your stories about what happened with this boyfriend and this one and so on? Literally. But when you actually trace how people grew up, Especially also if you think about it in townships and so on, people would have conversations across the fence from each other if there was a fence, right? Or two houses down and they'll be talking, all right? And sometimes people look and they're like, yo, this person is literally shouting, all right? And we need to understand each other's cultures and suspend judgment, amen, okay? In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Verse 19 to 23, it says, Though I am free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew. That's flexibility, isn't it? There are a lot of things that are not wrong in many different cultures. Just because they're weird doesn't make them wrong, all right? To those under the law, I became like one under the law. This is emotional agility. You're agile. You're able to adapt. I'm so glad that in my spiritual formation, I mean, I went to a Catholic school from grade one to three, all right? Uh, I was raised in an Anglican family, okay? So I've done the whole, you know, mass thing, the whole traditional church thing when you're kneeling down and you're doing all sorts of things. I went to a, a, an Anglican boys boarding school, okay? Um, and I even got an award in terms of service to the chapel, etc. But then I got born again at 12 years of age, and that was quite evangelical, you know, in terms of Christian camps we would go to, etc. My family at some point got involved uh, with some of the AFM people, radical Pentecostals, etc. Right? So I've, I've, I've been involved in many different things, and I suspend judgment. So I can go to a particular function and I see that, oh, there are these people from this Christian tradition and okay, I understand why they're doing that. And you go somewhere else, oh, okay, I get why they're doing that. 
But you have some charismatics will go to some of these places and they complain afterwards. Oh, it was so boring. And Paul, they do this. And Paul, they do that. There's a lot of good stuff in what they do. Amen? There's a lot of good stuff in what they do. And for some of you, you have to learn to be emotionally agile. Where you know how to go to a five-star hotel and you're comfortable there. But at the same time, you can then go to a shanty town somewhere and you're comfortable there and you eat what those people eat. Amen. Amen. All right. I'm so grateful that when I was growing up, every holiday we would go to the rural areas, right? And do the things that happen in our rural area. And sometimes we'll be hoping like, when are our folks going to come and pick us up? We now want to go back to the suburbs. When are they going to pick us up? And then people would con us, ah, they're coming tomorrow, they're coming tomorrow. We didn't see them the next day and so on. And we just saw their car driving down, we were so happy, cool, we're going back to the burbs. Amen? You have to understand in Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe's independence was in 1980, okay? So black people started living in the burbs around then. We started in 1979, I don't know how, maybe they became flexible with the laws. And that's when we moved from the township to the burbs, okay, in 79. But we had lived in the township, right, first few years of life, lived in the burbs, right, go to the, our rural home every holiday, right, knew what goes on there, etc. And it's given me emotional agility, yet some people are so rigid. Now watch what he says, he says, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. So, as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I've become all things to all people, so that by all means possible, I might have, I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. What are you willing to adjust in your life so you can reach the lost? Where are you willing to be flexible? Are you like, oh, I don't eat those things. I was going to say, how many of you are snobs? But I don't think people admit. Oh, Paul, some people think I'm a snob. You ever have someone saying, oh, guys, to be honest with you, I am a snob. <laughs> Number three, love your enemies. Love your enemies, if you have any. Jesus commands us to love our enemies, not merely to tolerate them. Love does not mean I agree with you, but it means I care. So if someone is doing something and it's ungodly, you still care for them. Amen? The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 to 45, look what Jesus taught. He says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. These guys had hectic teaching back in the day, hey? Imagine being told that. Imagine you come to church and you're told, guys, yeah, you must hate your enemies, eh? You must hate your enemies. That's what God says. <laughs> okay. And Jesus changes that and he says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How many of you have been discriminated against? The key to overcoming it is not being passive. You know, some people take pride in the fact that I didn't retaliate. I didn't retaliate. I didn't retaliate. I didn't do anything back to them. Jesus actually gives us an instruction. He says, love your enemies. Because if you don't do anything, you become passive and you end up getting bitter. And at some point, your bitterness will defile you. So it says here, he says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So what you can do right now is you write down the name or the names of people who've been persecuting you and you make a commitment that by the end of the day, I would have prayed for them. That's what God calls us to do. Amen. Pray for those who persecute you. Why? That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. What's one of the marks of sonship? The degree to which you love your enemies. What's one of the marks of being a Christian? Praying for those who are persecuting you. That's what we're called to do. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to, to rise on the evil and the good. So when you see good things happening to evil people, just know that God causes the sun to rise on both good and evil. And says, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. It's a sign of sonship in God, loving your enemies. 1 Samuel 24, verse 16 to 17. It says, when David had finished 
speaking these words to Saul. Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? Then Saul lifted up his voice and he wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I. And what reason does he give? He says, for you have dealt well with me while I have dealt wickedly with you. Because Saul was jealous of David, he wanted to kill off David. That's how he had treated David. And yet David spared Saul's life when he could have killed him. That's a mark of sonship, amen? That's a mark of being a kingdom person, what David did. And Saul said, because of this, you are more righteous than me. In Romans 12, verse 19 to 21, for those of you who are about to revenge, do not avenge yourselves, beloved. Do not avenge yourselves, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, as I say, just leave him alone and ignore him. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. Have you got a boss that's ruthless with you, that's horrible? Has there been discrimination against you because you're a female in the workplace? And that's something you keep complaining about? What does the Bible say? If your enemy is hungry, feed him. When it's talking about an enemy here, it's talking about someone who's ill-treated you. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. You know how you're going to overcome your own issues within your soul right now? Go out of your way to do something good to someone who's treated you badly. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do you know how as a church we're overcome by evil? Bitterness and offense. Because what happens is when I'm ill-treated by people in the church, you guys treat me well, but I'm just saying, if that happens, it's, it's a snare. Because the enemy wants me to become bitter. And guess what I'll do? I'll say, they didn't do this for me. They were rude to me. They did this. As a pastor, I become bitter. And I'm like, so why should I go the extra mile for them? Why should I prepare sermons? Why should I pray for them? Why should I connect them with other people and try and help them to get breakthrough if they treated me this way? I become bitter and that bitterness ends up defiling me. And then I fall as a leader. And that's the pattern that a lot of Christian leaders go through. Are you hearing me this morning? There are a lot of women today who are doing all sorts of scaly, dubious things simply because they became bitter because of the mistakes that the husband made. Well, if he does this and he flirted with this person and he does this and he doesn't spend time with the kids, why should I care? And then you ask the woman, what happened? They became bitter. Ladies, mothers in this place today, do not become bitter. You know, there are many things that can harden your heart. Your heart can be hardened in ministry. That's why there are a lot of pastors who were great pastors yesterday, but they're not pastors anymore today. Marriage can harden your heart. Things within your own marriage can harden you. Children not listening to you and becoming rebellious can harden you. Make sure your heart does not become hardened. Betrayal in the workplace, what I call workplace wounds, harden people. A lot of times you see people backsliding in church settings and you're like, but I didn't do anything wrong to them. I didn't do anything wrong. And then you actually see that they became bitter and they became hardened because, thing, because of things happening at work. Everyone is bypassed. I've been bypassed. Whenever there's a promotion, they've earmarked promotion for certain people. Be very careful of bitterness. And that's the enemy's strategy against you. If someone discriminates against you, he wants you to be offended. Forgive and demonstrate love. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Your Christianity will largely be demonstrated by how you treat people, not treat people who love you, but how you treat people who have marginalized you. Amen. Amen. Number four, see the opportunities within a calamity. Make a list of calamities that you're facing right now difficult situations that you're in and next to them write out the opportunity you know it's been found that there's this thing in psychology it's called cognitive control it's your it's it's where you set your mind to achieve certain goals despite the circumstances it's similar to grit grit is commitment to long-term goals despite the obstacles 
And people who have wired themselves to focus on the opportunity instead of the calamity, to focus on what am I learning from this as opposed to my boss is just criticizing me all the time. These people are racist. These people are prejudiced. As a woman, you can't survive in this situation. If you focus on that, it will ruin you. But if you focus on seeing the opportunity in the calamity, it's actually a predictor of your success. People who become successful in life are strong when it comes to cognitive control. Strong when it comes to that mindset of, these are my goals, I'll keep being persistent, I'll keep pursuing them despite how I'm being treated by people around me. And how many of you that you can teach young children cognitive control? You can teach young children grit. And it's been found that the children who learn this, there's certain exercises you can do, but the children who learn this, they become successful later on in life. Do you know that your IQ, your IQ only predicts 25% of your success. That's why there are a lot of very smart people who aren't successful. The other 75 is predicted by, do you view stress as a challenge or a threat? Do you have social support? It's the other stuff that predicts your success. That's why there are many people who are in the bottom set, you know, we used to have streamed situations, who weren't smart. You were way smarter than them, but you're looking at what they're doing now and you're like, but how? And then you start thinking, but it's not fair. <laughs> no, it is fair. You only thought of intelligence just being IQ. You didn't think of social intelligence. You didn't think of emotional intelligence. You didn't think of resilience. You didn't think of the other stuff. Amen? If we want to overcome prejudice, especially if people have treated us badly, we must see opportunities within the calamity. Let me give you an example of someone who did that. He was ill-treated, Joseph. And in Genesis chapter 50, verse 15 to 21, it says, When Joseph's brothers saw their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? You know that history repeats itself. History repeats itself. These guys were prejudicial toward Joseph. They treated him badly. And I believe that Joseph is a good example of how we should treat people who treated us badly. At a national level too, not just individual level. So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of God, the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. Today there are people in this nation who are thinking, now that these guys are in power, what are they going to do to us? Joseph is an example of what we should do to those who we feel marginalized us and treated us badly. It says, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. When you've got a group of people in the nation that are full of fear, all sorts of things happen. When people are full of fear, they'll just hear some kind of sound outside and they will be trigger happy. They'll take their gun and they'll shoot. And there are many people with guns in this nation. We know that, right? And they'll just shoot whatever they see. And sadly, some have shot their daughters. Some have shot their son, who, teenage son who was taking the car, going out to some club or something. You know those stories. But that's what fear does. That's what anxiety does. It's unhealthy in a nation to have any group of people full of fear. And what is interesting is Joseph says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? My message to you, South Africa, is don't take God's place. God has got a way of sorting things out. But sometimes in a nation, we begin to play God. And we begin to say, because you did this, all your people and all the people who look like you, even though we know from this DNA testing, there's lots of mixture. All these people who check out like you, yes, we're going to punish them this way. Be very careful. Because when you play God, what does the word of God tell us? With the same measure you judge, you will be judged. And he says, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Don't you love Joseph's humility? Then he says in verse 20, look, he looks at the opportunity, not the calamity. 
You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Some of you are going through a hard time in the workplace, but you have to understand that sometimes God meant it for good because you'll never have the character you have today that's preparing you for that ministry God has given you if, you're not, if you don't go through what you're going through right now. And you've got a choice. Do you remain bitter or do you say, what is the purpose of God in all of this? Why is God allowing it? You know that it's very easy for God to answer prayer. For some of you, we've made decrees. We've declared all sorts of things, but you're still in the same place and it's not because of the devil. Sometimes you can see God's hand and God's purpose. It's what he's preparing you for. Are you hearing me this morning? So then, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Now think about it. What would you do to your brothers if they sell you into slavery? Think about it. He had been sold into slavery because they were jealous, because he had experienced his father's favor. And now God promotes him because promotion comes from above, not because you got some tender. If you get some tender through dubious means, those finances, that money, it doesn't last. The Bible tells us that God's riches don't bring sorrow with them. It's blessing. I don't know about you, but that's what I want to walk in. He had experienced such betrayal, the sting of betrayal. And he says, don't worry, guys, I'm going to provide for you. He did good to those who were persecuting him. God is giving you strategies right now to do good to those who are persecuting you. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's at school. Maybe it's a lousy boss. Maybe it's someone in the church. Maybe you've lent a relative money and they haven't paid you back. What is God calling you to do in terms of your heart? toward that person. That's the only way a nation will change. Not by this policy, that policy, and so on. Yes, policies have their place. I'm not against all of them. But a lot of them don't change the heart. Amen. Number f so, so that was number four. We see opportunities within the calamity. And we focus on that. Number five, look for common ground. You know that we've got so much in common with each other? Even though the color of our skin could be different, even though our ethnicity could be different, we've got so much in common. One of the principles when you are building rapport with another human being is establish common ground. And I love doing that with people. I was coaching someone the other day, and when we, when we realized we support the same team in soccer, you know, it just does something. Amen? When you realize that you've got kids who are going through similar stuff. He's got three boys, I've got three boys. And I can get tips because his boys are, are, you know, a lot older than my boys. And I found that in that conversation, we kept on finding common ground, common ground, common ground. And then there's a bond that is formed. It was like my last meeting. It was my eighth session. So for those of you who don't know, I've got a day job. I've got stuff I do during the week. Some people think that pastors just chill throughout the week and then they only work on Sundays, okay? I'd been teaching Tuesday through to Friday, full day, full day, full day at Gibbs. And then on Friday, back-to-back -back coaching eight people, back-to-back, -back, from morning through to late afternoon, right? And I was there and it was such a nice finale to my week, connecting with this person. Hindu guy. He had one of those, you know, red things on his wrist and so on. But there was so much common ground. And it's so fulfilling when you have this guy with a wealth of experience saying, please guide me, Paul, on the following issues. Establishing common ground. Are you hearing me? Sometimes we only look to skin color, ethnicity, language group for common ground. And yet there's so much else that we have in common. What are the areas of common interest that you've suppressed? Well, you've got a thing in common with someone, but you've suppressed it. I remember in one session I was doing, one lady, a youngish, black, South African woman, female, she said to us, in my department, it's difficult because I'm by myself. I'm like, what do you mean you're by yourself? Obviously, there's a thing. It's difficult because I'm by myself. And I said, maybe it's about how you're defining how, that you're by yourself. And then she what do you mean by that? In front of everyone. He says, the other people are old, white, Afrikaans, males. So I'm by myself. 
And I said, you need to establish common ground because maybe you live in the same neighborhood as these people. Maybe you have the same profession as these people. Maybe your kids go to the same school as their grandkids go. Are you hearing me? You see, sometimes we just look at age, ethnic group, and we're like, ooh. And then we reject ourselves before we can be rejected. So instead of connecting with the other people, we're like, let me keep my distance. Because if I try and bond and I try and connect with these people, they're all the same and they'll treat me this way. So it's safer to just chill with my people. And then your opportunities are limited because your social group is limited. Are you hearing me this morning? Okay. That's what this person said. You know that Paul mastered the art of establishing common ground? Let me give you a couple of examples. In Acts chapter 22, verse 25 to 27, it says here, As they stretched out, as they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do? He asked. This man is a Roman citizen. Can you see what he did? He, he happened to be a Roman citizen and he used that as common ground in his discussion with them. Let me give you another example of Paul. In Acts chapter 23, verse 6 to 8. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others were Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, descendant from Pharisees. Can you see what's happening? Was his identity in the fact that he was a Pharisee? No but he was establishing common ground. And my message to you this morning is, you've got so much more in common with the people around you beyond language and beyond the color of the skin. Do you know that if you're not careful and if you keep looking at color as your only source of common ground, you'll discover at a certain point that you can have family members within your own family that look very different to you. You are best friends with them. You've got so much in common, but they turn out different. And I want to show you this clip quickly of these two twins. These two twins, and you'll see how they came out. Oh, twins are always two. Okay, these twins. These pretty teens are best friends, and they're also something else. Something that may surprise you. We're twins. Believe it or not, they're twins. Yep, we're twins, we're we're same twin mom, sisters. <laughs> same dad. You heard right, they have the same mom and dad. What are the odds that one would be black and one white? A lot of people are just in shock. Lucy and Maria Aylmer live in Gloucester, England. Maria has a caramel complexion, brown eyes, and thick curly black hair. Lucy has pale white skin, ginger red hair, blue eyes, and freckles. Most people have the same reaction when they hear they are twins. They, they say, um, how did it happen? We don't believe you. So, how did it happen? Their mom, Donna, is half black and half white. The twins' dad, Vince, is white. The couple was thrilled when a sonogram revealed they were expecting twins. I just cried. <laughs> I was, it was shock. Mom did a double take when she delivered one black and one white baby. I'm so glad mom dressed us in such cute little outfits. Mom dressed her adorable twin daughters in matching outfits, just like twins everywhere. But by age 10, Lucy says she didn't feel like a twin. So why dress like one? We don't look alike, so why should we have to wear the exact same thing? Maria says she once wished for Lucy's straight hair. I used to cry about it. I hate my curly hair. And Lucy says she was sometimes taunted at school. They thought I was adopted. You call me a ghost. Now 18, the twins not only look different, <laughs> they have very different personalities. We're completely different. Maria loves getting dressed up in chic clothing. She is very outgoing. Never, I love meeting people. Like, I'm not scared to approach people or anything, so. Whereas I am, I'm terrified of like going up to random strangers. Lucy prefers casual clothes, but they've come to embrace their uniqueness as black and white twins. If I have kids one day, they might come out looking like Lucy. that's another interesting one just to show you that you can have so much in common with someone else but not have the skin color common does that make sense not have some of the features common and we've overemphasized on externals and we've used our externals as our source of identity instead of looking at other areas of common ground okay 
Number six, deal with perceptual distortions, perceptual distortions. For example, sometimes we've got this mindset where our mind is not renewed. So we think people are either all good or all bad. Have you noticed that? Ah, that group of people, they're the bad people. This group of people, they're the good people. The, how many of you are researchers here? When you look at a lot of our perception of groups and our stereotypes, it would not stand in any scientific research. If you look at the sample size and how we make judgments, there's so many variations within even a cultural group. Amen? So when people say, Kosa women are like this, what do they call it? We are, we are papa, I think it's called, eh? <laughs> right? They're like that. How many, how many Kosa women in this, in this church? Okay, there's Miliswa. She's definitely not that. Okay, definitely not that. Um, okay. <laughs> They're not that, right? But somehow when there's a stereotype about specific people, what do we do? We're then like, we, you will find it. If I believe that closer women are like that, what will I do? When there's a way your brain works, I'm not going to go into it, but you actually block out, it's called a scotoma, where you block out the unimportant information and you only notice what you're conscious of. So if you've got that stereotype, you, they'll pop out at you the ones that are a certain way, you know? And then when you see one, you're like, that's so true, that's so true. But you don't notice the ones that are not like that. Are you hearing me? The, the word I use there, it means what, like outspoken, out there, forward, you know, that sort of so much. And that's the stereotype, okay? And for, and for a lot of those ladies who come up from Eastern Cape, then they come to Gauteng, they struggle with the fact that everyone has branded us this way. But we're not all like that. Amen? And in this nation, we've got it concerning so many different groups. Eh? Vendor people are like this. Zulu people are like that. And yet, if we did the research right now in this particular church, you'll actually see that most of the stereotypes don't fit concerning the people. You will get what you look for. If you've been told something, you will only notice those things that you've been told. And then your stereotypes will be deeply embedded. So let's deal with these perceptual distortions. Amen. Okay. Sometimes we've got certain value equivalents to certain values. What do I mean by that? Oh, I, my daughter wants to get married. So I want to see if the guy is decent. Do you know that the guy who's going to treat her really well and be faithful to her is not necessarily the guy who's got good table manners. A guy might have bad table manners because he was never taught how to use a knife and fork, but might be the most loyal, faithful, committed husband and great father to your daughter's kids. Are you hearing me? But sometimes we've got these things that, where we just have a stereotype. Uh, if this guy is, has got bad manners, bad table manners, then maybe uh, he's, he's not civilized. He will not treat my daughter well. Says who? What are the value equivalents you've placed on people? Are there certain stereotypes you're living with right now that are affecting how you relate to people? There's a particular lady at one of the banks and she said, Paul, I learned my lesson. Because there was a guy who walked in, he was not dressed that smartly. And he walks in and she treated him in a particular way. Then she goes and she sees his bank statement and his bank balance and realizes this is our top client when it comes to wealth. She goes off, she says, I learned my lesson. She goes and then she treats him differently. And the guy says, oh, has my bank balance changed how you're going to treat me? And he obviously told his wife about it because she also then came into them and said, how come you guys treated my husband in this way? Her value equivalent of wealth was too focused on how someone dressed. Are you hearing me? A lot of very wealthy people are not overcompensating. They don't have to make a point. You know, they're not wannabes. You know, you can see some people are wannabes where they're trying too hard to live out a certain image. All right? And so I found that, that very interesting. We've got these perceptual distortions. What's the, what's the solution? Romans 12 verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We must renew our minds. In Philippians 4 verse 8, it says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, stereotypes are not true, Prejudice is not based on the truth. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, 
think about these things. How many of you know that you are and you become what you think about most of the time? You become what you think about for most of the day. There's a guy called uh, Emerson who said that. Not Emerson Nangagwa. Emerson. Ralph Waldo Emerson. He said that. You become what you think about most of the day. What are you thinking about most of the time? We must embrace the truth. And also when we do this, we must stop using stereotypes to our advantage. You see, if you're a guy and you're amongst a group of ladies, and then one of them asks you, so what's your view concerning the political situation? There's already a stereotype there, isn't there? That because I'm a guy, I'm more clued up about politics than the girls around here. So do you use that to your advantage to gain popularity with the women that, yeah, yeah, guys, let me explain to you, even though you're not clued up about the politics of the day. Or do you challenge the stereotype by saying, well, um, I'm not too sure actually, uh, but Susie over here might have something because I know she's always reading up on it. You see, as believers, we are called to challenge the stereotypes and not use them to benefit ourselves. Amen? Number seven, create new mental images of people behaving differently. Okay? New mental images. Imagine someone who's from a particular cultural group where you feel these guys never do this. Visualize it. Play that video over and over again in your mind. And it's amazing what you end up seeing with regards to those particular people. Okay? Keep asking yourself, what else could be true? What else could be true? When you're about to make a judgment about a particular group, these guys from the Congo, these guys from DR Congo, what else could be true? What else could be true? What are the other possibilities? I still remember the vendor guy who was telling us about his experience, snow skiing. And it broke a stereotype in my mind. Remember that people can change. If someone makes a mistake one day, it doesn't mean that they'll always remain there. If you hire someone and because of lack of experience, don't, uh, they make mistakes, don't box them in that space. People grow. And remember that people are different within a particular group. One experience like that does not mean that they'll always be like that and that everyone in that group is like that. Be careful of having set patterns in your mind. I still remember in about 2011 when Emily and uh, Sunera joined the church and I would see them walking and see them walking in. And I remember going up to them and I was trying to welcome them in and so on. And... Um, and I said to them, yeah, my wife and I, we really like Indian people, you know, and so on. And then they corrected me and they said, Paul, there's Indian and there's Indian Indian. <laughs> right? And there's a whole joke around that. But they were basically saying, don't stereotype all Indian people in one group. Amen. And I love the way Jesus did this. He saw the treasure in people. Watch this. In John chapter 1, verse 46 to 48, Nathanael said, when he was being called by Philip, he said, can anything good come from Nazareth? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here is a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Do you know what Jesus did? He spoke to the treasure in Nathanael. He could have said, how come you are being discriminatory? How come you've just said to Philip, Nothing good comes from Nazareth. Why are you saying that? I don't want you to be my disciple anymore. But what did Jesus do? He spoke to the treasure in Nathaniel. And he, he said, you know what? I love your honesty. There's no guile in you. There's no deceit. If someone acts in a certain way towards you, speak to the treasure in them. See the good that's in there. As opposed to, Paul, they're treating me really badly. Celebrate those who break stereotypes. Celebrate them. And then finally, number eight, learn to manage your own rage or reaction to the discrimination. Manage your own rage or reaction to the discrimination. I still remember when I was studying industrial psychology, about 97, somewhere there, I remember being in a situation where we had this magazine, I think it was called People Dynamics, and it says that for a lot of the black managers in South Africa at the time, their challenge is this. 
It's not so much the discrimination that they face, but it's managing their own rage over that discrimination. Manage your reaction. When people treat you in a particular way, whether you're black, white, Indian, so-called colored, whatever you are, female, male, are you managing the rage you have? How are you reacting? Is it an emotional trigger that sets you off and you end up doing things that you're going to regret? When people discriminate against you, treat it as a teaching opportunity. They're doing it very often because of their limited exposure in the world. Remind yourself about that. Ask them the question, what are you afraid of? Very often people treat you a certain way because they're afraid. People who are bullies, bullying is essentially about control, isn't it? It's about control. And when you stand up to a bully, they go and they bully someone else. But ask yourself the question, why is this person doing it? They're insecure. Bullies are essentially insecure people. And sometimes if someone is racist towards you, often it's because they themselves are insecure and they're afraid. Explore your own emotional triggers. Why is this affecting me so much? Do I feel belittled? Is it because my identity is so much in how people speak to me? That when that person spoke in a condescending way, it wasn't so much a racial thing. It's just that I'm triggered when people are patronizing and they treat me like I'm stupid. Because as I was growing up, I was told, you must be as clever as your brother. You must be as clever as your sister. So now when someone treats me like I'm stupid, I react. And I'm calling it a racial thing, but I haven't dealt with my own emotional triggers. Are you hearing me this morning? God has called us to deal with these things. In John chapter 5, verse 41 to 44, Jesus says something so powerful. And this is my prayer for all of us. Jesus said, I do not receive honor from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor? That comes only from God. God is calling us to be straightened toward him and not bent toward man. Amen. Let's pray. Mm -hmm.